Hello, and welcome to the show. I have a very special guest with me today, Jimmy Valley. You've been in the XRP community for more than five minutes. You absolutely know who he is. He's kind of created a lot of fun and excitement with his XRP buyback theory or uh, proposal. And he's also a very accomplished securities attorney and experienced in the investment world. So I have quite a few questions that I'm going to ask him today about a variety of different things. So Jimmy, nice to see you and thanks for coming nice. by. Nice to see you, Molly. Thank you for having me. So one of the topics that I wanted to talk to you about today, just a couple of things, is about a paper that you published this summer on asset-backed digital currencies. You like to call them ABDC, a ABC, right. okay. ABDCs. ABDCs. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I like the rock band. <laughs> so what does that mean? How is that different than our current digital money? Excellent question. So our current digital money is basically a digital representation of the fiat money that we have in circulation right now. Uh, fiat means it's declared you know, by, by order or by regulation. Uh, so th there is uh, there's effectively no intrinsic value to the uh, money when you talk about the U.S. dollar. And, and, and all countries have some form of fiat currency now. We're in a fiat system. Uh, there is no intrinsic value to that paper. It's worth probably less than two cents, um, the actual physical you know, representation of it. But it's the full faith and credit of the United States that's backing that, right? It's 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 basically us, the, the, the citizens of the United States in our support and pledge to uh, to provide our labor and credit and taxes into that system that provides the value that supports the US dollar. Whereas an asset-backed currency, let's talk about that first and, and compare that to a fiat currency, is kind of what we used to have pre-1971, where uh, you could actually take in a dollar and actually pull you know, some amount of gold that was backing that dollar. This is, if you go back to the origins of money, it begins in exactly this way. It was gold being stored with certain persons uh, that were the gold storage providers. They would give you a receipt and that receipt was your claim to get the gold that you had basically put in storage there. Those receipts then started being traded among people for various goods and services. And our financial system basically grew out of that old kind of merchant system. So it's kind of a, an asset-backed currency is something that actually has a claim on an asset behind it, gold, oil, natural gas, there can be a few different things. Okay. And then the digital is just a digital version of that. So imagine that the the digital receipt, uh, instead of uh, instead of being a paper receipt, it's in digital form. Um, you, you, you know, it's cryptographically secured on a blockchain, such that you know you've eliminated the double spending problem, uh, and you know, so it's not copyable and being able to be spent over and over again. And that's basically what an asset-backed digital currency or ABDC would be. Now, this is different than a pure gold standard because there's a variety of assets that could be used to back money. 
Now, who decides what that list of assets is? Because if, if it's many things, that could become quite subjective, right? We could be arguing about what I think is a value, and you might have a different opinion on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's an excellent question. Uh, I, I I believe that these uh, these things of value that would go into supporting a new asset-backed digital currency system would be things that are precious and non-renewable. So things like gold, silver, um, maybe some of the, the metals that are being used in computers and in battery, you know, lithium, cobalt, things like that might also uh, be deemed to be you know significantly valuable to us. Things like oil and natural gas. Uh, but I think it would be hard for agricultural products, uh, I think you had mentioned in an, in an email. You know, what about acorns? You know, could that could that be something of value? Uh, paper, paper is a renewable resource, right? So these things probably wouldn't be uh, agreed by the major market participants to be something that could support uh, or that they would recognize as being of of significant, substantial value to support trading in that currency. Well, we've certainly seen over decades that energy is considered a valuable resource and oil could be one of these resources that is used to back a currency. Well, how does it work, though, if I if I create a currency and I back it with oil, but then I use the oil for something? Yeah, good question. Uh, you, yeah, you're, you're basically then getting us back to what the, the fiat problem is. So, so I think you're going to have to have some type of programmatic auditing of what's there uh, to, to make sure that, you know, the amount of gold or the amount of oil in reserves, um, you know, the, the paper that you referred to, we, we referred, uh, we, we were using in the African country, their in-place gold reserves to support their asset-backed digital currencies. So there, there would need to be, you know, periodic audits and then clearing of the physical commodities from time to time. Now, since you've got the digital currencies uh, and, and and those things are, you know, cryptographically secured with serial numbers and things like that, that attach to real physical commodities in storage or in place, um, I think you wouldn't have to do that Kind of like every day. So I think I think that's what took us away from the gold standard before was that there's a major transportability problem with using physical commodities, notably gold. It's super heavy, and and being able to transport and clear that either across oceans or you know send it in the air in military aircraft. So you could you could use in the interim periods you could be using the the asset backed digital currencies to to trade back and forth and that was kind of your inventory representation of you know where where you were um but yeah i think from time to time maybe once a year uh maybe once yeah. a quarter uh you you would start to have true ups uh between the the major market participants the ones who are truly you know underwriting these um these currencies we had a gold standard in the past, as you obviously know, but it seems like there's a big temptation for governments to push that line and issue more currency than exists in assets is kind of what got 
the U.S. into trouble in the 60s and early 70s was this overspending problem. So governments, though, they like this ability to print money out of nothing because then they can show up as the savior in a conflict. It can also pay off a lot of other nations via foreign aid. So are you of the mindset that a lot of these governments, especially the wealthier ones, are they going to walk away from fiat to this new money system? I think they're resisting that, uh, but I think certain governments are resisting it more than others. And um, the way it appears to us <laughs> is that it's the Western govern governments who've actually benefited the most from the fiat system and have the dominant currencies, uh, the G7, uh, the EU and, and the United States specifically have benefited the most, the United States the most, from having a fiat currency system because the U.S. dollar has been used for, since the Bretton Woods you know, a, agreement has been used as the uh, world reserve currency. So not only have we benefited from being able to do things like um, sanction other other foreign counterparties and push them outside of the system uh, when we want them to politically do things that is in our, you know, more in our interest. Um, we, we've also, uh, we, we've experienced, we, we've owned the money printer, right? So whenever we wanted to bail ourselves out or do whatever, we could just go to the printer and print more and push it in, into the system. Uh, I think what we're seeing in the world and, and the geopolitical, you know, different uh, things going on is uh, the, 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 the world is basically choking on, on the U.S. debt. Uh, and so much so they, they just can't take it anymore. Uh, it's, it's unconscionable to uh, sanction them and put them out of the, the SWIFT system and, and being able to have access to the currency. So you're seeing, you know, Russia, China, it's the BRICS nations seem to be coalescing to come up with a new uh, standard to, at least among themselves, be able to engage in international trade. Uh, you know, as as the, the, the West was seizing assets of Russian oligarchs and, you know, others who were more, you know, um, in line with Russia's political desires and geopolitical desires. Uh, I think you're just providing incentives for them to really have a strong alternative uh, currency and, and stronger avenue to, to deal in trade. So is it kind of a game theory so, situation where these sort of emerging market nations are going to just force the hand of the West? It, that appears to me the way it's playing out. It, it appears that uh, they are going, or, or in most cases, have already gone back to a gold standard. And, and let's just, for your audience purposes, when I say gold standard, it's a euphemism for an asset-backed currency. So it's probably a basket of currencies. It's gold, oil, natural gas, uh, maybe some of these other precious, you know, metals and minerals like like we talked about. Um, but but anyway, they, they are they've already moved back to a gold backed currency standard. And um, I, I think. I, I personally believe that um, there was already an arrangement that in lieu of 
a bona fide global conflict, um, like where people were getting drafted and and sent sent to war in droves, uh, that this macro issue has already been decided. And I, I think we as Americans were um, purposely held back uh, from from kind of going on to the standard because we were the furthest out of whack since it had been our uh, currency uh, that uh, was basically financing the world and Americans lived through that benefit for so many years. Uh, we had to kind of everybody else is just what we believe everybody else got to go first and we are getting to the end of that period where basically for america to continue to participate in global trade we're going to have to go back to the standard as well we'll be like the last one to make it happen but that's when everything will lock into place and it'll be at that time that there's some type of a repricing of these commodities maybe just a repricing of gold uh, to what it really should be in order to support kind of everything, both assets and liabilities that are in the, the total system. Uh, it would be at that point that we think, uh, you know, XRP could really fill in its role. XL, you know, maybe a few of the others uh, could fill their roles of becoming, you know, bridge currencies to these asset-backed digital currencies that are issued by governments or central banks of governments. So there, there have been a lot of indicators that this is happening behind the scenes and in, obviously in other countries. Do you think there's going to be like a, a day that we wake up and it's like, wow, the the uh, light flip, the, sorry, the switch has been flipped? Or do you think we're going to continue to sort of see this happen in like stages? So I I hope, and I've been hoping for a long time that it would be a, a flip switching type moment. Um, I, I think, unfortunately, if we can just, say it plainly, uh, we have a significant amount of corrupt people um, who are gatekeepers to that flip flip of the switch happening because they are beneficiaries of the old system. Okay. Uh, they've, they've been able to get away with things uh, like money laundering, like committing, you know, crimes and 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 getting away with this stuff that are, you know, materially lucrative transactions, but may not be uh, morally or spiritually appropriate type things. Um, so I think I think these people um, are are effectively dragging out the time, and until they, you know until they come to their senses or until they have lost the last bit of power. Um, I think, you know, the, the timetable is, is going from a, you know, where it should happen like this, or even like singularity moment, it's just getting drug out and drug out, you know, over time. So, so um, you, you could see this switch flipping moment kind of being something more like, there's a certain amount of uh, there's a certain majority, a super majority of, of people that basically say that's it, enough's enough, we're not contributing to that system anymore, and then it would break. Um, 
it's 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 probably something like that. Some people or, have speculated yeah. that Basel III rules, which are kind of around gold reserves being held by banks, could be that. Do you think that will play a role? I think it does play. I think it's already playing a role. Uh, I think it's just. I, I think it's another. Um, it's another domino, another chess piece, kind of moved into um, you know the the ultimate uh, departure from the old system and going into the new system, the transition into the new system. Now, while returning to sound money sounds like a great idea, it's going to change a lot of things. I know in your business you yep. do trading. How do you think this change to a new system would affect financial markets? Are credit cards going away? I mean, are loans going away? Uh, right. So um, we we so this is unprecedented in our lifetimes, but it's not unprecedented. Uh, it's actually the way things used to work in the past. Uh, in the past, when a lot of um, kind of the merchant rules and the laws that grew out of those merchant rules evolved, uh, the money that was loaned was real money. It was hard money and, and you know, based on sound money, but they were postpaid debts, okay? So what I mean by that is um, when, uh, like our families, if they were leaving the old world and coming across, you know, to set up in the colonies, they they probably were staked in some manner by investors who said you know go over there and start to exploit the resources in the colonies and and send those back and here's you know here's a treasure chest of gold and silver like real hard money and we would have taken that and and then gone and you know conducted our business activities and tried to create profits to send back and pay those loans off okay. in hard money okay but what turned out to be the case is we we actually got out of whack over a period of I think a, a couple of hundred years of being in the colonies after having taken massive amounts of hard money, and then we didn't have the hard money to send back, and that's effectively what started leading us into this thing we call the United States, uh, which was an attempt to incorporate and protect the assets that we had developed in the colonies. Um, now this maybe doesn't apply to you, but my, my ancestors, depending on which ones didn't even come over till probably the 1700s, early 1800s. But, you know, for the real people who came here and actually started becoming colonists and, and this, this is how it worked. Right. So, um, the money could still be lent, uh, credit cards could still occur. You're just going to have to pay it back in some form of, sound money um it, this is look this is about to start happening it's not it maybe won't even hit the the, the well, it won't hit the consumers directly first but as these countries um you know go back to to sound hard money so for example we we've got contacts in Nigeria that they are going back to a gold money standard like on January 15th like that's everybody's got to be in because i think by the end of the month they're going to be back on the gold standard. Well, their money is going to become more valuable than the U.S. dollar. Like there's going to be more of a demand for a Nigerian gold-backed Naira than there will be for the dollar. And so 
the the relative value of those things are going to change and if you think about how that's going to affect the the the, the credit type markets if you're borrowing money in the gold bag naira they're going to expect that they're paid back in a gold back currency that they recognize and accept they're not going to be taking that fiat dollar back unless it's i mean probably more than you can get your hands on until such time as you know the us were to go but um you you're basically go back to 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 get back to your question go back to a postpaid debt system instead of a what we're in now which not a lot of people appreciate is we're basically in a prepaid debt system that you know if you go back to 1933 when they confiscated the gold they effectively had to write the balance sheet by our credit right the credit of each person that, that became a united states citizen so speaking of that time period Back in 1933, there was a very bizarre thing that happened for us and that the U.S. government forced citizens to sell gold. It's kind of hard to imagine that happening now. And that, I know, is part of the XRP buyback proposal that you've been working on. Do you feel like there would something similar could happen in the future as we kind of go through a monetary shift like they did back in the 30s? Yeah. Initially, you're you're 100% correct. Back in 2021, the concern that what the government was up to was going to lead to that type of a taking was a big part of um, proposing the, the, the terms in the way we did. Um, we, we think what's happening is that the, the disclosure of the corruption at the SEC, uh, the failure to turn over the Hinman emails and things like that, is basically uh, we're we're getting closer all the time to actually learning what the true story is, right? Instead of having to go through a um, a taking and a repricing which is what happened when they when they confiscated the gold back in the in the 30s um we still think what we're doing is is valuable uh, th that could happen uh we 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 think that the the plan of the SEC and we're not sure how high it goes right but it certainly looks like most of the SEC uh was was engaged in a coordinated effort to try to just flat out steal it that they knew that xrp was going to become some type of a financial standard in the new world that it was going to take 10 years and maybe even um a lawsuit uh that had to go to the supreme court maybe that it was going to be something that had to be tested legally over years and years and years uh and they basically they they coordinated with other actors. Uh, it looks like J.P. Morgan's a big participant in all of this to basically front run that, that process and and try to just monopolize the new financial system before it had really even left the cradle or left the crib, um, or just flat out 
take take the assets by by manipulating the markets in a coordinated manner. Uh, and I think I think it's become obvious to those who've been watching this carefully over the, the, the past several years that this has been a very coordinated campaign to suppress the price of XRP and the adoption of the XRPL. I know there's like ethical issues with that. Are there any legal issues? Like is the government going to get into trouble if that becomes uncovered? So, so, you know, we, we live in a system now where I think basically for all intents and purposes, all three branches of government have been captured into this banking system, right? So is it legal? Yes. Is it lawful? Probably not. Uh, because these are trespasses and takings of our property uh, that it's it's a taking without the, the the determination of fair value. So it's a taking without payment of fair value, which in a constitutional government, our Fifth Amendment would prohibit that. The, the Fifth Amendment prohibits the taking by the government uh, of assets from people and, and using those for public purpose without just compensation, which is effectively the payment of fair market value. What's the difference between something being illegal and being unlawful? That's an excellent question. So um, we have thousands and thousands and thousands of statutes uh, and people engage in millions and millions and millions of activities that effectively, if you didn't violate the statute or you didn't get caught, it could be legal, right? Or... If you do get caught, but you go before a court that basically agrees with your defense, it's legal, right? Okay. Uh, could be, uh, you know, it could be, you know, uh, sending money to Ukraine to launder it back through FTX could be legal, <laughs> right? However, the people whose property was stolen in the in the enterprise, that was a, a bona fide unlawful thing, according to like real law, natural law, biblical law, things like that. Okay. So when we think of things being lawful, you're really talking about more of a common law concept, which is I'll do no harm to Molly. She'll do no harm to me. And if I accidentally do some harm to Molly, well, then I'll make restitution to Molly for doing that. So okay. I won't trespass on on you know Molly. I won't trespass on her land. I won't take I won't take Molly's stuff uh, without coming up with some agreement with Molly to pay her you know fair compensation. Um, that is a lawful type type environment. Then you then you start to put on that what is basically the law of commerce, the law of merchants and the way we deal in contracts and promissory notes and these types of things, statutes, codes, and ordinances are flow from that type of law. Those things are illegal. Interesting. As I'm not an attorney, so I never probably, I never thought about those differences. Well, most attorneys don't learn this in law school either. So uh, you're, you're not alone. So speaking of the XRP buyback, first of all, it's just bizarre to me the emotional reaction that 
people get when this topic comes up at times, which I just find strange. So if you are watching this and you feel triggered now that we brought this up, just like sit down. This is an interesting discussion because I think it goes far beyond what might appear to be the case at surface level. So one question that I know comes up a lot is if hypothetically there were to be a situation in the future where a government or a bank were to, to buy back the asset at a much higher value, why wouldn't they just buy all of it right now when it's very cheap? Like, seems silly to not do that. What is your response to that question when that comes up? So there, there's there's several reasons, but the the I think the most profound reason is that the only reason they would really want to do that is to, in the process of the transaction, establish a true fair market value. Okay, fair market value requires a few things. Uh, it requires, you know, both parties not being in a position where they're compelled to sell. So, for example, if you and I are, I want to buy your XRP. If I put a gun to your head and I say, "Tell me, sell me all your XRP, or I'm going to blow your brains out," I'm compelling you to sell. You're basically entering that contract under duress. That's not an enforceable contract. Fair market value was not established, right? Likewise. If I know that I'm going to buy your XRP and that we are going to use it as the transformative asset of a new financial system, and that you know within a year, two years, three years, we're going to dramatically increase the price based on a global coordinated effort that we've been in, engaged in for multiple years, and I don't inform you of that, then I've done the same thing. It's called fraud and the inducement. I, I'm in possession of material facts that had you known that, you would not have sold it to me, okay? So we've just talked earlier about all the different fraud and the coordinated FUD and, and the fact that this lawsuit has been brought, it's been delisted from this exchanges. You have all these media people going on to CNBC, Jim Cramer, uh, you got Michael Saylor, all these people FUDing XRB all the time. Now it's it seems like it's moved up to the Charles Hoskinson level and the um, the uh, Vitalik Buterin level and and this guy Craig White weighed in here you know past past couple of days and gotten an argument with David Schwartz you know about stuff so this is a massively coordinated campaign to basically keep people from adopting the asset so it is a price suppression activity what is on the exchange is not real. And that's where the cognitive, this is why I think people have so much cognitive dissonance about a high price is because in order to basically start agreeing to the high price concept, and it doesn't even matter if it's $35,000, $100, right? Mm -hmm. If you think that the price should be $100, you really start to have to question whether what you're looking at on the screen is real or not, which goes to the whole, is the whole structure, is the whole system real or not, okay? And the cognitive dissonance of not really wanting to know <laughs> that, that it's that it's kind of made up. But let's look at, uh, let's look at recent events, okay? okay. FTX 
had a balance sheet the week before they ultimately failed that they took out on on a road show trying to basically get money in to, to save the firm. But they had two tokens on there, the FTT token and the Serum tokens that had a combined value of over $5 billion. Those two assets on their balance sheet was worth over $5 billion. After the week played out, and we had the, the testimony and the review by uh, the former Enron turnaround guy is now the interim C CEO to take him through the bankruptcy. I think his name's John Ray. Um, those are being carried now for less than, I think, a combined value of a million dollars. Okay. Wow. So, so at one point on an exchange, if you mark to market what those accounts were, they were $5 billion, and a week later it was under a million. So that's just, that's an example of it working the other way, right? And the only reason that we believed that those FTT tokens, Binance had a whole bunch of them. That's when, when Binance basically, excuse me, when Binance came to the conclusion that uh, they aren't actually worth this, what did they do? They sold them all immediately and basically started the death spiral for, for FTX. Well, the same thing can basically happen in reverse. All these same people have been the ones who've been coming out against XRP for years. I don't understand what XRP is about. You know, oh, I just can't get it through my head. You know, well, I don't see what these people see in XRP. Yet they're going and buying, you know, Luna and FTT tokens and Serum tokens and all these other tokens, right? I won't mention any, any others for fear of, you know, causing some bank run on them. So look, markets are a, an amalgamation about, you know, what a lot of big kids can put onto the market or take off to the market, okay? Which in and of itself is a form of, of manipulation, but then the rest of it is basically media hype, media things that they can make you believe by going on CNBC and talking to all these pundits and Gosh, if they pull up Jay Clayton again to talk about, you know, whatever, how this man, how anybody would trust anything this guy has to say after basically suing Ripple and walking out the door the next day and then going to work for crypto hedge funds and Apollo is, I just, I don't understand why people continue to kind of subscribe to this celebrity class of investors who really, we, we don't know anything about these people other than they're on TV all the time talking about investment opportunities. So, so can you actually invest in any of these markets with confidence knowing how manipulated they are? Well, you know, ironically, um, it may be, and I hope this is the case one day, that we 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 come to learn that the lawsuit over Ripple during this time actually kind of and the delisting of it it put it in almost like a protected area even though it was in timeout and adoption has been slowed dramatically certainly at the institutional level uh, which then trickles down to kind of the the lower investor class or whatever adoption's been dramatically slowed during this 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 period where there's been a cloud on title but maybe 
at the end of everything, we're going to learn that, well, because it was off in this protected class, because Ripple had, had done so much disclosure with their quarterly reports and everything and disclosing how much is coming out of the escrow and going back in every month, um, that that transparency, while also kind of being held in time out, will, will be one that we know, okay, this is, at least we know there's no fraud associated with it, right? Um, a lot of the others, you know, if, if, if look, um, we've we've done extensive due diligence on Bitcoin, Bitcoin mining firms and stuff, and people should be very concerned about Bitcoin. <laughs> uh, and and I don't want to go into that as kind of off topic here, but uh, once people truly start to understand who controls the mining capacity, where the money's going how long the Bitcoin miners actually hold on to Bitcoin. Um, and if they don't know, they they should be asking those questions. We did. We went and did the diligence. We've seen these facilities with our own eyes and talked to the executives and stuff. And we know. We know what they're doing. And um, it's, uh, it's something that people should really be. They, I hope they've done that. I hope they've done that. And they're not you know, looking at a, a Michael Saylor who's telling you to mortgage your home and go, you know, buy more Bitcoin or a uh, um, Max Kaiser who comes out and says, you know, all there is is Bitcoin. I control the politicians because I control the Bitcoin, these types of things. Um, that That's that's scary, scary stuff. Do you think if we all knew the true identity of Satoshi Nakamoto, that would change anything for Bitcoin? It certainly could. It certainly could. Um you know, apparently this Craig Wright gentleman comes out claiming he's Satoshi all the time. And based on uh, this little spat he just had with, with David Schwartz on Twitter, um, I'd be concerned about that. Like if he's really Satoshi, I'd be super concerned about that. Because, you know, allegedly Satoshi, whoever Satoshi is, had come out. Uh, years and years and years ago and actually thought the Ripple project was a good project, thought the XRPL was a good project and doing something really good. Um, so, you know, is that person now kind of 180 and uh, saying something completely different? I think uh, the reality is we, we've we learned this from, from um, uh, other disclosures. Our government knows who created Bitcoin. I think it's four individuals. There's four Satoshis. They know exactly who they are. Uh, I would think that uh, the major institutional investors who have material Bitcoin holdings are under a fiduciary obligation to know who Satoshi Nakamoto is. I, I mean, uh, are, are you really telling me that you can go make hundreds of millions and billion dollar investments in an asset that you don't know who has created it, you don't know who controls that wallet, that they could do whatever they want to at any time. And you can like look at your investors, in some cases, pension funds, other major, major institutions with a straight face and say you have no fiduciary obligation to, to know the truth behind that. I, I think that issue in and of itself either requires that they absolutely knew or all of them should be fired immediately. I mean, it's like that. that it, I think we saw with Tornado Cash that the U.S. government too will not hesitate 
to label something for being sort of for terrorism or money laundering purposes. What if Satoshi turned out to be a North Korean hacker? I know people think that he's a native English speaker because of the white paper, but I don't know how conclusive that is. But they, the U.S. government could easily create trouble for Bitcoin if the identity was late, you know, classified as someone who was a terrorist or drug drug dealer. Or, or, or it's no big deal. Or he's he's a Silicon Valley Jedi genius, you know, who can sit there and meditates, and he's a pure person who put. I mean. I don't know. I don't know what, what the case is. I, I know that the people who have the most of it now and the most mining capacity now are not him or her or them. I guess we got to know our pronouns. Uh, and, and um, you know, um, I think uh, I think people should know. I th- I, we would have to know. I mean, we you know, we 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 went into Bitcoin. We were in Bitcoin for about three months, four months, and did did fine on it. But um, uh, the more I learned about Bitcoin, the more I used Bitcoin to actually like send money around and stuff. It was like this is this is a joke. Slow, slow, energy intensive, expensive. There's also a belief that one of the problems with this sort of crypto market is that we don't have clear regulations that apply to digital assets. I know Gary Gensler has spoken multiple times that he believes that the regulations are clear. Now, as someone with extensive securities background, if you were in charge of regulations, how would you define these assets? Gary Gensler is trying to keep optionality to go shake down anybody in the sector uh, and, and, and accuse them of securities violations. Uh, so it it might be real clear. Remember, so that's legal. That's legal right now that he can okay. go and do that. Okay, um, but but may not be lawful. Okay. So um, this isn't hard to figure out. Uh, it, it, if it all comes down to, are you using the proceeds from your offering? To basically develop the project or not if 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 you are if you are like ethereum for example and you actually went and pre-sold your 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 tokens for bitcoin to then go and invest those proceeds from the offering in developing your network and issuing um your your tokens then your tokens are a security, right? You 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 had some type of an option to acquire these, you know, digital rights uh, in the future. That's basically it's a textbook security thing. Um, if you created the project before the issuer issued anything, right, and and these things existed, and you sold them and booked them as revenue. Um, and just like any other product, because there was a utility and people could buy these tokens to use them to do something else, whether that be create their own projects using it or send fiat money or use it as a treasury function in their business or whatever, then th- those are not securities. Those are products. Those are commodities. There's, there's something else. And uh, I think that should be a very easily bright line to draw. And uh, it it's kind of shocking that no, um, you know, 
big law lawyer or, you know, uh, regulatory person has leaned in to, to get those rules kind of written. Congress seems to be doing an abysmal job of doing this right now. Uh, with just, you know, we've got the, the Loomis and, and Gillibrand uh, Act, and they just they, they seem to have conversations with Gary Gensler and they go parrot whatever he says to, to the media. Um, so uh, that, that's what I would draw that? the line there. And then I would also I think there is a place for um, uh, the, the Hester Purse safe harbor type of thing. And I don't know if you're familiar with that, but she proposed years ago. I want to say she proposed the original one. It was either in 2018 or 2020, and then she kind of redid it. I think it was 2018, and then I think she redid it in 2021. Um, but effectively, it's a three-year safe harbor. It's a very reasonable, like the way the securities laws used to work type type regime, where you know you, you and I could come up with our own project. Okay. And then basically spend three years trying to get the adoption of the various governance systems and nodes substantially decentralized and spread out among you know uh, the world that there was no central third party actor anymore that that truly controlled everything from a governance perspective. And um, and she said we should have three years for that, and probably by the end of year two. If you hadn't been successful in getting that done, you were basically starting to work with lawyers to draw up some type of uh, registration for uh, the securities that, that you know were, were out there that you were going to to sell. And that seemed like a really reasonable kind of you know way to help transition everybody into this. I think in the future, uh, we'll. we'll like what we want to do is actually have bona fide digital asset security. We we want to issue tokenized securities. Um, and because the rules are so unclear, uh, we, we've, we've spoken to the SEC and they've told us that they probably couldn't even get that through. And they're going to get twisted up in issues like, well, who's the transfer agent? What are the tax consequences of you being able to spend a tokenized, you know, share of Amazon stock at the gas pump or something like that? It's like, well, these really aren't your concerns, your securities regulators. But anyway, uh, we should be able to do bona fide securities offerings as tokens for tokenized securities and follow all the, the Section 5 regime of the Securities Act, do registration statements on them. It's just they're going to be in the form of, a, of an NFT, a tokenized security, and not in the form of, you know, well, they're they're basically fiat digital now, right? For the most part, they're held in book entry form with the with the various brokers and transfer agents. Um, but you know, you you should actually be able to have that security on on your phone or your your digital wallet, whatever that is, and you should be able to use that as value uh, to spend on all kinds of stuff. I mean, there's a belief that everything will be tokenized at some point, which I know everything is a very broad label, but that would obviously include things like stocks and bonds. Correct. So are we kind of held up with that because of this lack of organization in the government figuring out how to do that? 100%. Uh, Crypto Airy just did, a, and I, I think I, I think I sent it to you, her video mm -hmm. uh, where Goldman Sachs was talking about, uh, they've got a whole team that's working on uh, these NFTs as quote unquote financial instruments. That's what they're talking about. A, a security is something that is uh, 
it really lends itself to being embodied in an NFT because they're for the most part, once you set the terms in writing with the either the trust indenture or the offering document, whatever it's going to be, that thing doesn't change, right? It is what it is. It's got the rights it has. It's got the votes it has. That that type of thing is is very kind of um very just conceptually applicable to a blockchain digital, you know, a truly uh, uh, NFT type environment. And I think that investment banks are, I think they're chomping at the bit to to be issuing these things. Imagine, imagine the party that gets to do the first one. That's going to be freaking awesome, right? Um, so I think... I think the SEC is, uh, but it's not just the SEC, you know, because I I do think in a a strange way, it's kind of like it's almost all or nothing, right? Because because of all the efficiency savings and because of the, you know, the dramatic reduction in cost, dramatic reduction in friction in a tokenized kind of asset world versus, kind of what we have now with middlemen and brokers and all this stuff. Once you have two major parties go over here, you hear this discussion a lot in the context of talking about atomic settlements, like it's what, you know, PolySign wants to be doing. And that's where you can actually see what, what both parties have before you even transact. So there's no kind of concern about who goes first type of a thing, but um. Yeah, is um is is we move into this tokenized world and and more people, it's gonna go really fast because you will immediately not be competitive with, with these other market participants. They'll be able to do it faster, cheaper, less people. Um, and it's it's gonna we we think it's gonna sweep through everything. I mean, you're talking about whole like accounting offices and stuff just being Brush the side is is redundant and unnecessary. Yeah, there's a pilot project this past summer, Project Ion, that was testing settlement for assets for the DTCC. And it would essentially mm-hmm. eliminate this entire back office group of people who are kind of admin, basic finance sort of accounting types that just goes away. That's right. And and as you start to think about that, you know, and you start to think about the accounting firms and then the, the accountants are employed there and the bankers and just all this redundancy that's in the, the legacy system, you can start to understand why some people are kind of slow playing <laughs> because they'll have to learn other skills and do other things. I think, you know, it probably pushes us more into a creator type economy generally. Uh, so there'll still be a need for, you know, uh, creative type accounting people, creative finance people, creative deal makers, I think will be in very high demand. People who, you know, can can kind of sit in, in both the old world and the new world. And um, it, it's it's going to be a great time, I believe, this this transition into, you know, the the truly digital economy, which is different from a digital fiat economy, right? I understand that we're just typing the numbers. The Fed's just kind of typing the numbers in now on the computer and, you know, the, the the new money shows up and that's digital money as far as it's like a digital representation on a screen, but there's nothing behind it, you know? Uh, uh, so, so 
this world we're talking about is where it's truly there 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 are claims that you have on bona fide assets behind you know not that you, not that most people would ever make those claims but you could this whole asset world of digital assets kind of connects to property rights mm -hmm. in that you it's different how you would own things in this new kind of digital wallet world. So how would you explain what property rights means to somebody not really familiar with that in this context? You know, um, one of the difficulties of, of going through this is you do, it, it takes you back to the fundamental concepts. You almost have to go back to the beginning of how all this stuff kind of rises and the property concepts we have in our kind of fiat system world is security collateralizing debts um, that are themselves, you know, debts for money that isn't, it's not really even a real offset of the thing uh, that, that, that's collateralizing the loan, if that makes sense. So I think, you know, in some ways it's just kind of easier, you know, in a, in a tokenized, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, like, homes and commercial buildings and things like that the the ownership of these things will be embodied instead of deeds that are recorded at the courthouse and and you know that's kind of how the you prove up who's got the superior title and all that types of stuff you're talking about those same instruments being tokenized into an nft and then recorded on a blockchain uh, and and the ability for anybody to basically see the value of that, not only the value, but really to kind of KYC, AML, to due diligence, the true ownership of the thing can be done with computer access anywhere in the world. Um, things can be recorded by anybody anywhere in the world. You get into, uh, I think the, the thing that's starting to take off on, on the property side is really kind of a fractionalized ownership of certain real estate assets, right? Crowdfunding your loans. Um, you know, I had this amazing discussion. I had this opportunity to go speak uh, about a month ago um, at uh, Princeton Business Today's uh, international conference in New York. And uh, it's it's so great to, to talk to the, you know, like the college age kids now because they're so far beyond on this stuff. They're completely comfortable with it. It's not the same kind of resistance that people our age and older kind of have because we're still attached, you know, to the old system. To them, it's a clean slate, and it's it's just easier and more efficient. But uh, one of one of the uh, persons had this great idea. It was a it was a um, a woman had this amazing idea to basically be crowdfunding student loans. Uh, and and kind of getting these micro loans, but from a crowdfunding basis. And it's basically just kind of, if you think about it, it's instead of directing our credit uh, uh, to the Fed and, and using our credit to basically support the, the, the Fed in a centralized money printing, money, you know, distributing entity, uh, more kind of pointing it back at the people. And let's kind of help, help every you know, everybody out. And, uh, you know, so you get into all these interesting issues about, you know, okay, let's say there's a, a foreign student that wants to go to, you know, Harvard 
and you know take out student loans or something how does that that person may actually have exceptional credit the way we think of credit in their world but when they come over to to United States it's like they don't exist you know because they don't have a social security number and all this kind of stuff um so we get at this how do you track credit of country to country all these types of things blockchain could could be helping out with with that as well um Anyway, I think uh, all these new financial ways of financing things and starting up companies and uh, the way people get access to, to to loans is, you know, really could could change substantially. I actually hope for future students that moving away from this fiat loan system will lower the price of college because it's just so ridiculously expensive relative to the quality that you sometimes get. That if I mean I don't think they would be able to charge what they do if there wasn't a loan system there to enable that. A hundred percent. I mean, you know, I, I think the 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 course, you know, that's the the poster child of what you're talking about is like a course in entrepreneurship, you know, in college. Like that's that's something that could not have existed when you actually had to really pay. You know, something that only with government backed student loans that are being blown into these systems and dramatically uh, increasing the cost of this stuff. It's increasing what the professors are getting paid, but then they're coming up with all this new, you know, stuff to, to, you know, get people to come in. You know, if you want to be an entrepreneur, the way you don't go to college and study it, you go into the market and do it right. You know, uh, Elon Musk could, I'm certainly give us a master class on on what it takes to be an entrepreneur. Nate, there's very little job training at university. A lot of it is totally impractical, art history, gender studies, things that are not going to serve you in a work environment at all. And there's also a ton of building of like infrastructure at universities with this money, like very fancy gyms and stadiums. And I mean, I get sports brings in money for some schools, but there are fiat buildings essentially being created unnecessarily because of the loan money. Like, I think it sucks for some kid to have to be $200,000 in debt so that a university could build a fancier house for the president of the university. Like, it just seems kind of I, I, I agree. Um, you know, I think, I think there used to be a big differentiating factor between institutions. Some institutions were better than others, and therefore they should have been able, just on a competitive level, uh, to charge charge more. I think uh, with with the internet and the pervasiveness and the ease to access information now, uh, that's just, just not the case. But, you know, to your point about how you, you come out of college, in some cases, woefully unprepared, I I went to three years of law school and came out of that. I didn't even know how to file articles of incorporation. I wanted to be a corporate lawyer, <laughs> you know? And I mean, it's like really the most basic fundamental thing that you would have to do. I knew a lot about corporate, you know, judge law. I knew about the business judgment rule and I knew about, you know, I, I knew what the merger statute said and things like that. I knew what the articles of incorporation statute said. I didn't know how to like do it when somebody said, okay, go do it. I didn't know, uh oh, you like take them down to the Secretary of State and you like file a document. I, so that's all stuff you, you had to learn kind of in practice. 
I did want to ask you a question about the Fed. So that you and I talked about this a couple of days ago. This news that came out actually a couple of years ago that is not widely known at all. That Well, first, many people don't know that the Fed is actually a private corporation. It's not an official part of the government. But during the CARES Act implementation, or whenever the CARES Act went into place, which I think was 2020, mm-hmm. the Fed yeah, was, was part of the rolled response. into the Treasury. So can you talk a little bit about what that means? I can try. Uh, I, I'm aware of it almost to the level that you just said it, uh, that, that, you know, apparently at that time, there was some type of merger of the two institutions. The implications of that is that the, the, the government that's like part of our actual Republic of the United States has once again asserted itself over the constitutional money Printing, developing uh, that 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 is in our constitution, which is uh, it's I think it's Article Two, Section A. It's 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 part of the legis- Congress's uh, authority to coin money and and regulate the the weights and measures thereof. Uh, that's what we refer to as constitutional money. That's what we had in this country up until around the Civil War, when that kind of concept started to to get eroded into moving slowly into what we have now, the, the fiat money system. Um, so, you know, I, I think the Fed is still printing this fiat money. Uh, it it may be that they have been, you know, um, they have been instructed to effectively destroy the dollar uh, because we're, we're waiting to once once the demand for the dollar, you know, drops so significantly that we have to basically answer our foreign commercial parties with a asset-backed currency, a gold-backed currency, um, you know, we talked about the, the switch flipping or however that's going to occur. Uh, at that point, that becomes a treasury-issued function uh, that these new notes that you're seeing here would be um they'd be issued by our treasury the fed would effectively be out of out of business we just wind it down you know it's just a, a corporate entity that we'd wind down now i read something a couple of years ago that was very difficult to verify because i think history that you are taught in school can be a little bit misleading at times so you mentioned civil war era something that i read a couple of years ago was that in 1871 after the civil war the us was bankrupt so it essentially was converted from a traditional government like we would think of it to a corporation, which would mean this Fed thing was kind of an M&A, right, where you had two companies sort of merge in essence. That That's kind of hard to believe, like that what I believe to be my government my whole life may not be the case. I think uh, instead of thinking about it as a merger, I'm just thinking about it as a spinoff. I think um, okay. I think initially in the initial years up until the federal reserve act so now we're talking about the jekyll island you know um passing you know, putting the the federal reserve act in front of congresspersons which happened i think 1910 1911 um before that i think you basically had a, a separation or an outsourcing of that constitutional money function to 
effectively a third party corporation, call it a money service provider that ultimately grew into the Fed. We had a, a few, you know, we had some panics and some bank runs that occurred post-Civil War, kind of during the Reconstruction period, um, where where throughout those process, that those kind of boom and bust uh, processes, the bankers were, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm talking at the highest level, bankers were, were ceding more and more control because they were loaning more and more value in order to make things happen. Uh, they really perfected it kind of uh, this 1910 to 1933 time period um, where you had the Jekyll Island meeting uh, that that becomes the, the bona fide Federal Reserve, this this thing with the district banks that are all owned and controlled by people. I In most cases, I think they're all outside of the United States. They're not even uh, not even Americans that, that control this money printing process. Um, I've heard, you know, I've heard ultimately as you, you go up the chain, there's there's city of London that has has you know ownership. Uh, there's uh, the Vatican's had some ownership. It's it's you know, it's these these types of entities that ultimately control control our Fed. But yeah, it was kind of like it was spun out and outsourced to a third party, okay. and then we're fully within the 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 fiat money system, which is all you and I have have known you know all of our lives. So let's say that the Fed now no longer exists as a third party. We have sort of two things that could happen, right? One is we no longer have a central bank who can serve in the capacity of lender of last resort. Or maybe there's going to be a new central bank. And this is something I've seen tossed around. I'm just curious your opinion on it. Do you think Ripple could be a central bank for the United States? And that is the function of the escrow is to provide this liquidity of that you would need to have as a central bank to bail people out in the event something happened. Could be. Um, I've heard that too. I've heard that PolySign could also be that custodial center. But Ripple does have the escrow. The escrow doesn't work like the board of governors to the Fed does now, right? The escrow is not people who get together and basically yay or nay, based on the the economic factors they see before them, you know, whether to raise interest rates or reduce interest rates, you know, uh, buy up securities, whatever they're, they're going to do. Uh, whereas the escrow is cryptographically published and has a, you know, it has a, a, a very set timetable. Uh, in fact, I was looking at that before this call. Uh, XRP Arcade has an excellent, um, he, he, he or she basically has all the um um, um releases from escrow and then how much went out how much went back in every month and so um we've we've actually gone through 58 months of the escrow since the public it initially was supposed to be it well, it was set for 55 months right so we've already kind of crossed the initial term and the money that went back in or the the XRP that went back in was then published to a, a new contract that went another 55 months. Uh, 
our new escrow term. So at this point, we've kind of gone three by. Uh, we so that fifty-eight months that would have been fifty-eight billion came out. Forty-seven point three billion of the fifty-eight has gone back in. So there's only been um, a net release of ten billion, ten point seven billion from escrow in the whole fifty-eight months. That's an average release per month of one hundred and eighty-four million. 184.4 million, almost 0.5 of XRP a month. Uh, at that rate, from the beginning to uh, to get it all out would take, uh, according to this chart I got here, yep, uh, 25 years at that rate. Uh, and the current pace, let's see. Yeah, so it's it, it's accelerated a little bit of what's remaining. So we've already had the five years have gone by, right? Of what's remaining in escrow at at the average rate of what's come out the whole time. Uh, it's about about another twenty years till everything would be completely dispersed. Now it goes um, it goes up and down. You know, uh, it seems when it it changes. It's gone for a period of, you know, six to seven months, something like that. I'm looking here. It For the past four months, since July, it's uh, 300 million has been going out. Before that, it was 200 for about six, seven months. And before that, it was 900, 200, sorry, 100, 200. that was actually coming out of it. So what's your take on so, the purpose of that escrow? Like, why was that set up? I think um, I think they were dealing with uh, a lot of real criticism uh, about what their monetary policy was, okay. uh, and so they said, and 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 this, you know, hey, you guys have the fifty what 58 billion or whatever it is in in your holdings that you could dump on the market at any time and i think that overhang was a real problem uh in 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 the marketplace so i think in december of 2017 is when they uh yeah december 2017 is when they created it the first month that we have a data of of what came out was january 18 which also happens to correspond the last time it kind of you know really really went high right that's that's right around the time it had its all-time high um so i think that was a a, a a way to publish a monetary policy that doesn't rely on people you know it's um they decided it everybody knows what the rules are we can all you know i it would take uh it would take more than 80 percent of the nodes right to unwind it i don't think ripple could unwind it on their own um, so that's, that's kind of, that's, that's the monetary policy of this lender of last resort, central bank, you know, thing, whatever you want to call it. But, now, knowing sort of what we talked about earlier, that we're seeing this movement towards asset backed currencies, there will likely be many currencies throughout the world. Different nations will have their own. What role does XRP have when we have all these other currencies? Like, why do we, what do we need XRP for? 
<clears throat> so XRP is to serve as the neutral bridge asset, right? So um, the the way you got to think about this is that it's it's really not that much different the way currencies work now. But we have these we have networks of paper, <laughs> right? That's that's the U.S. dollars, the digital yuan, you know, the ruble, the pound. We have all these networks of paper that are also not interoperable. You know, they, they can't really be exchanged in a one-for-one type. So you have to have an agent who basically makes that happen. And they do that through this, this holding, you know, certain people bank enough of the different currency in order to be able to facilitate to make that market, right? So these are currency exchangers, Nostro-Vostro accounts. That's, that's kind of what happens. Um, so... You know what? What I think everybody appreciates at this point that that's that's kind of lost value in the system. That's based the the friction of our system and the requirement to physically hold th these things in order to, or or even digitally hold them to make them have a a, a transaction is an illiquid, inefficient process. So if you could actually have a and, and the other thing is the Triffin dilemma, which plays into this. Uh, in case your audience hasn't isn't familiar with that term, it's there's this natural conflict about having a nation's currency also serve as the world reserve currency, because basically at some point in time, and I think we're we're seeing this very clearly now, um, your legitimate international interests and what you want other people to do, and using your political some cases military power to make people do things internationally sometimes is bad for your people at home. And the opposite is also true. If you do things that are good for the people at home, you end up giving up, ceding some power on the geopolitical stage that you otherwise wouldn't want to do. So that kind of inherent conflict is called the Triffin Dilemma. And so I think that's another reason why if you could have a, a go-between that, that was always able to flip one to the other. If we had a supranational currency that everybody could agree to and agree what the value was, it would be a more efficient and would provide more liquidity generally. You could basically have each country could always deal in their own currency. And all they need to hold, they don't need to hold dollar, rubles, francs, blah, 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 right? They just need to hold this one other thing. The supranational currency. So that's the way ESDRs are proposed to work in the fiat world. Okay. Okay. Now we're now we're in the digital world. And so in the digital world, these fiat things become CBDCs. Let's still just say it's digital. We're, we're not going to the asset back, it's just digital, right? So now you've got a network, a USD network, and a you know. Chinese yuan network that have no ability to communicate to each other because the programming and the standards are completely different for how these two networks work, right? Who's in control of them? So you, you need something to be able to take that value, transport it to the other network, and it'll interoperate. It'll basically be your connection, your pipeline connection to the other thing. So you can take this one, flip it into the other thing. And that's the importance of uh, XRP kind of moving into this this new new world. That's awesome. 
I think it will totally change the role of the U.S. military globally, hopefully in a good way. We won't have to be the cop on the beat in every country enforcing our political agenda. You know, that it, that is what um, is leading these other countries to go away from the dollar now. Uh, you know, th th their people want to, you know, have sovereignty and be free and do, you know, have have they want to live the way that they their culture you know supports them living and if you can be cut off from the financial system because of a you know geopolitical disagreement uh, that's not a system that you can participate in for a long time you just can't so you have to find a way you know around i think it's i think the sanctioning um the 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 role that are that we've we've played geopolitically for really the past probably at least 20 to 30 years but maybe even 50 years has um that cop on the beat type of thing um it's it's probably not needed any longer uh, and it's certainly not desired and that's why you know we we've got a lot of people um a lot of uh, other countries that are wanting to kind of go their own way. Do you think that's going to be a problem for Ripple and XRP that it's considered to be an American? I know at least obviously Ripple's an American company. The exchange that they created is American run. XRP could be construed in an American created asset. Is that going to be a problem for countries like Russia and, and China potentially to use those for their own trading? I don't think so because it I don't think they have a problem with um you know the tech being developed by Americans I actually think American uh technology develop developers and, and companies that um uh I think we've got the among the best the most elite in in the world I think other countries recognize that and I think they 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 like that I don't think they think that's an issue I think the issue is more that the the current financial system is more kind of captured by the political class. And so it's driven on the political winds uh, of the time. And it's not truly just kind of neutral. You know, it's it's not Swiss enough, I guess. Uh, and I think I think they're fine with with. Um, and, and, you know, it's it's not just going to be you know, ripple. Um, we'll, we'll see what happens with the escrow. I think, again, in order to kind of change the monetary policy, I think you're going to need, you know, nodes that are all over the world uh, to come to an agreement to to, to do that. So I, okay. I, I, I don't really see that changing absent some really major, major thing. So I, I, I don't think because it's kind of set in stone cryptographically, I don't think people are very concerned about Ripple kind of, you know, being American in the and therefore governing the the XRPL in a manner that would be adverse to another country, sovereign country. So I know a couple of weeks ago you launched a new committee that was sort of a second iteration of the XRP buyback work you did a couple of years ago. It's been about Thank a month now. Yeah. It's been pretty cool so far. What is cool. the goal of this 
committee and like what was the what is the outcome that you would like to see happen? <clears throat> um we have a lot more information now than we had back in 2021. Okay. Uh, the, the, the things we've been talking about uh, on this, on this podcast here were not known by most people. In 20, so most people didn't know the federal reserve was a private corporation back in 2021. That concept was, there was cognitive dissonance just on these base building level things. Uh, they certainly couldn't have wrapped their heads around that the markets might be manipulated or that the SEC may intentionally be trying to slow the adoption of the XRPL, right? Okay. That th These are just things they could never have even. But now we've had this whole, we've had the, what, 18, in fact, I think it's more like 20, it's like 20 months of the main dispute in the case has been whether the SEC is going to disclose the Hinman emails and the drafts of the speech and what the various lawyers at the SEC, their input into how the Ethereum speech, free pass speech came, came to pass. They don't want to disclose that at all. Okay. Well, that, that obviously has uh, a bunch of people correctly speculating that there's, there was something very amiss at the SEC kind of as an institution, not, not just, a few bad actors. This was pervasive among and, and known among most people, the SEC. That has become more of a common, common knowledge thing at this point in time. With the FTX collapse has occurred and the exposure of how um, things like money that went to Ukraine somehow ended up being invested in and through FTX. And then we've learned that there was a lot of those dollars that somehow found their ways into politicians in America's pocket on both sides of the aisle, Republicans and Democrats, um, that the, the connections of um, Sam Bateman Freed's parents into very high political um, um lobbyists uh, is is extensive, uh, that Gary Gensler, the chairman of the SEC, was frequently meeting with Sam Bankman-Fried and other, that, that Sam Bankman-Fried's uh, general counsel was the lawyer for Gary Gensler, I think, <laughs> there at the CFTC together. Um, all these connections now are known and we're learning almost on a daily basis even more um, the media's kind of willful ignorance and willful blindness about, you know, what, you know, most of them haven't even covered this case. It's like, this is the, the, the case is the most substantial legal matter or regulatory matter in the digital asset space. And most of them haven't even talked about it. Most most common people who aren't just living this all the time are completely under, unaware this is even happening. Okay, all that's now known, and so I think we can get past the some of these like why why would they want to do this? Why would I, this is actually the type of thing that could really, if if people were reasonable and had cool heads, 
they would see this is actually a path out of a very, very bad situation for a lot of people. So it just felt like it was time to kind of reconstitute the committee, uh, bring a lot more people in. I think last year we we were about 20, we were a little over 20 people. We have 46 now. So it's like double the size. There's a lot of influencers, a lot of people who basically spend every waking hour researching this stuff and learning about all these different things that are happening geopolitically who can provide input and their own experience. We have uh, we have at least three bankers now uh, as part of the committee, several lawyers, including some big law lawyers who are, who are part of this. These are people who a year ago would have been kind of, would you talk about Willis type, you know, thing when you, when you asked them about it or tried to get them to participate. So um, the whole body language in the marketplace is completely different than it, than it was last year. We've got these two subcommittees that are drilling down deeper. I think it's going to provide, um, you know, I've talked to John Deaton, for example, who's a, a friend. I love him to pieces. He's He's been a, an amazing patriot and hero for kind of common everyday folks who've been substantially harmed by our government and what he's done. And he's basically done it on his own back for, for you know, no money. But he's got a class of 75,000 people from all over the world who at some point at the end of this tragedy are going to need to be made whole based on what happened. Because when we know it all, and it's all going to come, the truth is all going to be revealed eventually. And that may take another year, may take five years. I don't think it's going to take as long as, say, learning that the CIA was involved in the Kennedy assassination. But, you know, it's going to, in some number of years, we're going to learn uh, how significant our government's involvement in the suppression and the FUD process was. And at that point, he's going to need a damages model, right? We're going to need to know what the fair market value of XRP truly could have been. It may not even be that it'll be able to be realized anymore because of these two years were basically taken away from people, right? We had $15 billion in market cap went away the first day. So, you know, you basically hit the, the pause button on the project for America um, for, you know, 24 months now. We're talking significant damages. We want to actually have a, a tried and true defensible valuation that assumes basically one major thing. If that lawsuit wouldn't have happened, if the regulatory capture would not have occurred and it was free to just go on its way and be adopted and, and achieve its ultimate intended, intended use case, which is to transfer all the value in a tokenized world, what is the present value of that number? And and have several different models in a football field, just like if you were selling a company or selling a, a bunch of oil or something, people will go through these exact same type of analysis. It's an asset, just like any other asset. We're going to put a value on that. And then when the lawsuit happens, once... Once people are certainly outraged enough that they realize what Gensler, Clayton, uh, Hinman, and and all these you know cast characters, A16Z, and 
Galaxy Digital and Multicoin and on and on and on. Once we realize how pervasive this fraud was, they're going to want a big number because they'll realize how how substantial it really was. And that's what it's going to be. And that's what will be going in front of the judge when they ask, well, what, what's your proof of the damages? Here's a valuation model that was done in 2022. Maybe this is a case at the end of 2023. Maybe it's 24 or whatever. Here's another one that was done in 2021. So um, we've got that valuation subcommittee. The other one uh, subcommittee that we formed is the technology implementation subcommittee that is really getting into kind of the weeds about how, from a technological standpoint, this uh, there's a there's a liquidating trust concept in there um, that there's basically a third party that would take the consideration from whoever the buyer becomes and hold that for disbursement to the participants that actually tender their XRP into the deal. Uh, so we're talking some we've got in the term sheet right now, someone like a poli sign, somebody like, you know, that's multinational, like a, a JP Morgan have to stand in and be that trustee. Um, but how, how is it going to happen? You know, so, uh, how is the uh, how is that escrow mechanic going to be set up? You know, what blockchain are we going to publish that to? How wh what when someone tenders it? You know, if the deal's not closing till next Thursday, and then it's Monday of this week, and they're tendering in, uh, how how do we preserve what they put in such that if the deal doesn't happen, they get their XRP back, or you know, if it does happen and it does close, they actually get paid. Uh, the the consideration that they're entitled to under the terms of the transaction. So we have some people. I, we have some people. I think you've interviewed a couple of these guys. Maybe um, uh, you, you just don't know who they are. Uh, who are who are on the the committee and um, and and they're digging into it. Um, I mentioned this in this uh, Ray Fuentes uh, video that that we did last week. That uh, we we would probably then take that out to bid. People, I, I don't know, because they, they like poking fun at me, I guess. Uh, There's like, oh, that, that's real funny. You know, oh, you're going to take it to JP Morgan and like, you know, give them the tech. That's that's not what's happening at all. We'll put them through a competitive process to determine who we think should be the best party to, to serve as the liquidating agent. Because that party is going to make sick fees in doing it, right? This is the most material m &A transaction ever to occur in the history of the world. And this this institution will for forevermore be thought of by, you know, certainly the XRP community as a bona fide trusted institution and probably end up being their banking institution, their custodian of what they receive in the deal going forward. So uh, it's a it's a big, big thing. Um, and anyway, that's that's that that's pieces of it. There's a lot of other things. We, we've got damages element put into it now. We've got, um, we have fees that would uh, go to certain uh, cooperating parties within the government that can facilitate making the, the transaction happen. And because this, you know, it's like uh, Hillary Clinton said, it's going to take a village to pull it off, you know, but uh, that's what we're working on. I tell someone else's, but I think you're playing chess in a world of people playing checkers and they're just unaware about how forward thinking you are about this particular topic. Uh, so I, if you're watching this and you sort of have this, 
you've made assumptions about what this XRP buyback project is about, just expand your thinking a little bit. It's much bigger. I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. Yeah. So Jimmy, you're absolutely a forward thinker with incredible knowledge about sort of the law and securities and investing. So how can people kind of keep a, you know on top of what you're working on and the things going on in your mind? Um, well, you know, be, be patient with this, uh, this new committee process. Um, I, I think, I think it's going to take a couple of months to, to get everyone to where we've, we feel like we've gone through a, a process that we've identified the proper counterparties. Counterparties are evolving, as you know, um, uh, it's probably not going to be the Fed anymore. Fed probably couldn't pay for it, even if, if right, they, they don't have any assets. Uh, it could probably be the Treasury as a participant, uh, but maybe it's the World Bank and the IMF need to be a part of that. Um, so be patient with us. We got a you know a lot to to think through. Uh, the 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 best thing they could do is actually to engage with the political class and say this is the thing that you need to be looking to do um, because it, it's it's really I mean we need a dance partner to truly move forward and, and, and dance with the XRP community and get something done. Right. And right now, um, you know, the current political class seems to have very little desire to actually learn anything about this new blockchain technology and how it's going to work and all this stuff. So um, we, we need people to start dancing and start actually being a, um, someone on the other side of the table because we want something that's going to work for everybody. It's going to work for them as well. But that takes somebody else. So you're suggesting people engage with the kind of Congress people and senators and even local government? Absolutely. Okay. Let's get let's get the term sheet in front of local government. Let's get in in, in front of uh, our representatives and our uh, our uh, senators, you know, so that they have something to start thinking about how to transition into this next thing. We've already got a lot of these components are falling in place. Representative Mooney, as you know, has put forth a, a return to the gold standard again. Mm -hmm. uh, I think as I was preparing for the call, I found that he, he had done it once in, in 2018 already. Uh, and it's just kind of set there languishing. Congress isn't acting on that. But there's components of this that are already kind of circulating in Congress that could really all come together if everyone just kind of gets oriented and, and thinking about this in the right way. And I think on the other side of this is a truly beautiful, beautiful time for Americans and, and, and the world. It's an end of conflict. It's, uh, you know, people can engage with any other person peer to peer with real assets on a level playing field anywhere else in the world. Um, I, you know, I, I, I see the, the future is very, very bright. I think the future that you know they were trying to give us from the central you know bank and and you know the 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 government kind of you know oligarchy was was going to be dark and I think I think we've made it beyond that now let's construct a truly beautiful future together. So I don't have to own nothing and be happy about it. Amen. <laughs> well, thank you very much. This is incredible. We covered a lot of things. I really appreciate Jimmy taking the time to speak with me about this stuff. Bet. I enjoyed it, Molly. Thanks for having me.